big idea is that fasting is a biblical response to the sorrow of our sin. So this week's worship guide will, in some ways, focus our attention on the application or the practice of fasting. But on the other hand, since not everyone is able to fast, and if you want more explanation of that, listen to the most recent recorded podcast message on our Embassy Church website or podcast, because some of us will find ourselves in situations where it's not wise or helpful for us to practice the actual discipline of abstaining from food or water, as we see in Scripture. But one of the things we see that fasting is done in response to in the Bible is the sorrow that someone feels for their sin. And I think that it would be universal for all of us that if we are sinners, and the Bible's teaching is that we all have fallen short of God's glory in our sin, then all of us have at some way or another felt sorrow and sadness for the ways that we have failed and sinned against God. And so one of the primary reasons we should pursue the practice of fasting is because it is a way to starve our sinful flesh and feed the spirit. And when I say flesh, I don't necessarily just mean your physical body, like starving your stomach from the appetite of eating. I think that that is a picture and symbol and a way for the, the whole body to speak and talk about what the New Testament reality is of this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. When Paul in particular in the New Testament talks about the flesh, he's often referring to the disordered hungers of our human will or heart. We were all made with natural appetites to be happy and to receive pleasure. But what we find is that sin has corrupted these appetites so that we long for the wrong things to satisfy these hunger pangs in our soul. And so one of my favorite quotes I've come across recently is from Ignatius, and he said, Sin at its essence is the unwillingness to trust that God wants f- what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God really wants for us is our deepest happiness. So today I want us to be thinking about that contrast between sin and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And another way I want us to consider these differences is going to come from a book I've been recently reading, uh, On the Road with Augustine by uh, James Smith. And he has an excellent chapter about freedom And basically, it's a commentary and philosophy of all kinds of things. And I want to just briefly summarize, before we do our first scripture reading, some of the content about the false idea of freedom that sin gives us, the illusion of freedom that sin gives us. Or in other words, I want us to think about the difference between the flesh and the spirit as The flesh being the illusion that you would be happy if you could get whatever you wanted. When in fact, it seems that this is the biblical definition of slavery to sin. We live according to our fleshly appetites, and when we do so, that freedom leads to a sort of slavery. And that freedom that I'm referring to is the sinful freedom that says, 
hands off, I've got this, I know what I want, I know I'm free when I can decide what's best for me. When every choice is like a blank check of endless opportunities and possibilities. This mindset is all about choice. And it really doesn't even matter what you choose. It's just the fact that you can choose. And we think in our sinful way of thinking that the removal of God's commands and constraints and the taking down of the guardrails on the road of life will bring true freedom where we can feel like, well, I can drive wherever we want. But many of us should know that when you remove the guardrails on the road of life, we can't just go off-roading wherever you want. Some of you might have a 1997 Honda Civic, and you'll know before long off-roading is just going to lead you into a ditch. You don't have the vehicle and the ability to just go wherever, whenever you want. In other words, removing God's commands from our life will eventually feel like a slavery or a punishment. Another picture or image that James Smith gives in his book is when you're swimming in an above-a-ground pool at your cousin's house and you keep bumping up against the walls, you might start to wish that the walls of the swimming pool weren't there and that the pool would go on bigger and wider. But in your rambunctiousness and you succeed to knock down those pool walls, you realize that the pool did not get bigger and better. It disappeared altogether. Freedom to be ourself will eventually start to feel like you're losing yourself and strip you in, of your own identity. It's a terrible and terrifying thing to know what you want to be and then realize that it is your own choices that are standing in your way. The desire to want with every fiber of your soul to be someone different, to escape the person that you have become, only to fall back into a self-hate over and over again. I wonder if any of you have ever reached the point in your life when you know you want a different life, but you feel enchained or enslaved to the one that you already have. How did we get here? And can we be set free is the main thing we want to be thinking about when we talk about flesh and spirit. The first step that binds us into this slavery is that illusion of the freedom of choice and the rejection of God's commands. When we take that choice and we reject God's command, we're deceived into thinking that this will bring about true and great happiness or satisfaction, but eventually that satisfaction of pleasure will settle into a predictable habit or cycle of behavior. Normally, that habit gets so rooted into our lives just about the time that that original pleasure no longer is pleasurable to us. It's like the honeymoon is over and the thrill has lost its novelty because, as we know, just taking one hit, one bite, one kiss, one drink will never satisfy the deep longings of the soul. But by then, it's already too late. By then, the habit has now become a necessity, and what our heart truly wants doesn't even matter anymore. So once we get to this stage, we continue to do these sinful behaviors because we think this isn't just what we want, it's what we need, it's what we have to have. And there's no one else to blame except ourselves. 
We're the ones responsible for the fact that these habits have now become our new masters. We were the ones who gave the consent, and therefore we are our own jailers. When we imagine freedom only as a freedom from the laws and commands of God or this hands-off liberty to choose whatever I want, this so-called freedom is actually enslaving us. When freedom is just another means by which we're trying to look for joy and satisfaction, we keep choosing to try and find that satisfaction in the created things of this world, whether it's sexuality or adoration or beauty or power. We will get stuck in a cycle of wanting more and more and more and only be disappointed in those things until we're actually dependent on them or enslaved to them. How many times have you kept choosing the choice of sin and it leads to diminishing returns when that becomes a habit and an eventual necessary decision of your life and then you forfeit your even ability to choose And now that thing that you once wanted and freely chose now has you. I think this is one of the ways to read the first stories of the Bible. In Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, the scriptures say, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. The opening chapters of the Bible set up the world as such a way that God abundantly provides for life and satisfaction and food. But there's one command. And as we'll see in the next story, sin is the unwillingness to trust the word of God And believe that what God wants for us is only our deepest happiness. Sin is the illusion of being set free from God's command and getting rid of the constraints and guardrails of his loving commands for us. to our next section, part two in your worship guide. The section title is, What is True Freedom? In just a moment, we're going to have a scripture reading from Galatians chapter five. But first, I want to provide some comments and some reasons why we're choosing this scripture. The way to freedom is to come to the end of yourself. To come to the end of yourself is the only way to realize that your disordered desires of your flesh led you to the place you're at and enslaved you in the first place. In other words, true freedom from the Bible is a bit ironic. My freedom to choose whatever I want actually brought me to the point of slavery, whereas biblical freedom brings me to the point of needing someone else to come from the outside and give me the ability to actually choose something else. Biblical freedom is not merely the freedom to choose anything. That's what gets us into trouble in the first place, isn't it? Biblical true freedom 
is the freedom to choose the good that God commanded. That's that most important point of today's talk. Biblical freedom is the freedom to actually choose to obey God's command. If sinful freedom is the freedom from God's command, then godly freedom is the power of freedom to obey God's command. It means that we have to trade our self-autonomy for a, a, a new kind of dependence, a dependence upon God. And so therefore, we have to come to the end of ourself and realize that we are dependent on someone other than ourselves. And this is the place of true human freedom. This is the one of the best lines in the book by James Smith. He says, it is the posture of dependence that liberates. It is reliance that releases. I love that last one. Reliance releases. Dependence liberates. Once we realize that we need something and someone from outside of us, then we can look at the constraints of God's commands very differently. What used to look like the walls that were keeping us in will start to look like the scaffolding that holds us together. The most revolutionary hope of the world is that we could have a new heart with new desires and the power to choose the goodness of God's commands. We are unhappy in this world, not because we have the freedom to choose whatever we want, but because our hearts are in such a condition that they can't choose the thing that truly makes us happy. God's grace is not just the forgiveness that we just sang about, but it is an infusion, a transplant of a new resurrected life, a revolution of our will and our want. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God's hand, the very hand of God that made us and loves us, is reaching down into our souls and giving us a new life. God's grace is the grace of freedom. And it's scandalous, isn't it? There is a scandal that this new grace, this freedom from God is a sheer gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot accomplish it. There will be no willpower or white knuckling that will allow you to experience this freedom. The human heart, as Augustine says, does not attain grace through freedom, but rather attains its freedom through God's grace. Let me read that one more time. The human heart does not attain grace through the freedom of our choices, but rather we attain freedom through the grace of God, the free grace of God. And this grace is a game changer. It is not the end of the story. It is the beginning of a new life. And therefore we can be someone that we never were before, someone that we weren't in the past and on our way to be the kind of people that we were called to be. And all of us should realize we live in that tension of, I'm not the person that I used to be, but by God's grace, I am who I am and I am becoming the person he made us to be. This is the good news that Paul picks up in his letter to the Galatians, that we are called to freedom and that freedom comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Sybil Castoni is now going to read for us Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to that selection. 
have one final scripture reading that I'd like to bring to your attention. The third and final part of this worship guide is part three. How then do we feed the Spirit? And this is where I'll make a few comments about Christian worship practices from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. As you're turning there, we have covered so far in the first part of this that our sin and our choice to rebel against God's commands and the freedom that we thought we would have to gratify the desires of our sinful flesh, the thought, the illusionary thought that I can do whatever I want to do will lead me to my greatest joy and happiness ended up being a slavery to us, a slavery that leads to our very death. But we see that the New Testament proclaims a gospel of hope and grace. We see that Jesus Christ has come and lived a perfect life that you and I did not live. He forsook the desires and temptations of the flesh. He did not give in to the tempter when he asked him to change some stone and turn it into bread. And he was obedient, obedient to the point of death, all the way to the death on the cross. And because of what Jesus has done, he has accomplished what we failed in. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus Christ succeeded, and he becomes now our older brother, our advocate, our high priest, and our representative before God the Father. And as he ascended to heaven after that resurrection Sunday that we celebrated last week, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon us to set us free, to give us new hearts and resurrected life. And so now we want to learn how to live according to that new life that's found in Jesus Christ. And it's in Ephesians 5 that we have a very helpful word picture and a comparison that I think will give us some language and some reasons for us to consider, A, the practice of fasting, but even if we don't practice fasting, it would give us some ideas of how, in fact, we feed or fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. So follow along as I read. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How do we feed ourselves with the Spirit or fill ourselves with the Spirit as the language is here in Ephesians 5. That's the the one little takeaway I want us to consider in this passage. You should notice in verse 18 that there's this interesting contrast. Do not get drunk with wine, for that will lead to debauchery, wild licentious living is what he's referring to. But instead, fill yourself with the Spirit. There's a contrast in this passage between drinking wine, which leads to drunkenness, and then being filled with the Spirit. Why? Why why use that comparison? 
there, there's a, maybe a few reasons. The first reason might be the fact that both of these are in a present continual tense grammatically. In other words, it means you have to keep doing it. If you're going to remain in a state of drunkenness, you have to keep drinking more and more wine. In the same way, if you're going to walk in the Spirit, as we heard in Galatians 5, there needs to be a continual and repeated keep in step with the Spirit, a continual filling of the Spirit, not because we don't have the Spirit, but because there is a way of living that is in line with what God's ways are, and you can grow in greater capacity for obeying God's commands and ways. This is the variations of our Christian maturity. Some of us have the Spirit of God, but we're very immature. And then some of us have the Spirit of God, and we have been walking in step with the Spirit, and slowly and surely over the continual filling, we we become more mature and more filled with God's words and ways. So that'd be the first kind of comparison, is that there's just this need for continual feeding, which is why I use that language of feeding the Spirit in the same way that you would feed your stomach or body with wine, feed yourself with the things of God, which is another way, I think, to summarize. Fill yourself with the very presence of God. But how do we do that? And um, we can see in verse 19 that there are a series of participles, is the technical language, but or explanatory commands. Notice verse 19. It says, be filled with the Spirit. And then the, the real helpful link would be to say, by. Like, how do I do that? By addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a series of exhortations that are in participle form, and what that means is that they're explaining the main command, and the main command is be filled with the Spirit. And the way that you are filled with the Spirit is through practices, through Christian worship practices. And he names out some of them. Singing happens in three different forms. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody. So he mentions singing in three different ways. Giving thanks always and for everything. And submitting to one another. And most commentators are going to suggest that he's just giving off a, a little list here. This is not like an exhaustive list of practices of worship. And this is why I want to insert in the idea that at the minimum, you should at least do these practices to be filled with the Spirit, because that's in fact what God says in his word right here. But in addition to that, as I was trying to highlight in our podcast teaching, again, if you haven't heard it, I would encourage you to listen to it. Fasting is a Christian practice that is a response to a moment in life that can be helpful for filling ourselves with the Spirit. And so we're currently living in a time where there are two things that often happen in the Bible that lead to fasting. One of those things is some sort of tragedy, some sort of sacred, grievous moment that leads to your heart and even your stomach and your body just not even having an appetite to eat. My guess is that some of you have experienced such pain and suffering, maybe the loss of a close family member or friend, where you just didn't have an appetite for a while. That's your body talking to you to say, this is unique. This is a sacred moment. 
And there's a good chance that some of us, as we're going through these coronavirus pandemic, we might come face to face with the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of certain things that is causing us to feel a certain sense of grief. And one of the ways that Christians have responded to grief is to fast, to not eat food, in part because naturally they don't want to eat and in part because that grief is, is so serious. But the second thing, and that's the thing we've been focusing on in this particular teaching today, is that the most common use of fasting is a response to someone's sorrow for their sin. When you look up the 30-some different references to fasting in the Bible, the most common times that they come are when somebody realizes that they have offended the holy God and that they have broken their life and that they find themselves in that state of despair that we've been talking about, where you come to the end of yourself and you say, my life is in a mess. And it leads to a moment of needing to respond. And how should we respond? One response, I want to argue, is fasting. And fasting can create a response of starving the flesh as we respond with not only the grief in our soul and have a sort of body language talk, a full encompassed embodied spirituality, as it's been said, for our grief, for our sin. But it also can have the positive effect of giving us the freedom that we've been talking about from Galatians 5, or the ability to actually obey God's commands. Fasting can start to put you in a state of self-control. It can be one of the Christian worship practices that could be added to this list in Ephesians 5, at least I would argue, that helps fill you with the Spirit. It starves you of those immediately fleshly desires, even though that we are sustained by food and we do need it and we shouldn't probably fast in an unhealthy way and over too long of a period of time that we, you know, kill and destroy our bodies. It's not what's being referred to in the practice of fasting. And as I mentioned in the podcast, the most common fast that Christians have done is just skipping two meals. You know, so one night you go to bed and then you don't eat all night and then you wake up and you don't eat breakfast and lunch. And then after the sun goes down, you eat a late dinner and you don't gorge yourself with a giant, huge dinner. That kind of defeats the purpose. It's more of you skip two meals and you spend a day in prayer and in fasting. And in by doing so, the hunger pains that you would normally feel should remind you that no, I have the spirit of God within me to be in control, to be self-controlled, to say no to my fleshly appetite and say yes to the things of God. And every time that hunger pain happens, you don't say, oh gosh, I'm so hungry. I'm starving right now. You say, God, I want you. I want to hunger like for you the way I hunger for God. And many of us are not good at fasting. I will raise my hand first to say this is not my expertise. This is not something I think that uh, many of us in the Christian church today are doing a great job of practicing. And I think that it is one of those things that when we practice it, we might find struggle with it. We might find, I don't know if this is very spiritual or helpful. And in part is because we've just, we're not used to it. And it's going to take a lot of habit and practice to do it on a regular basis. So that way, when the grievous moment happens, then you'll actually be prepared and ready and have a discipline in the tool belt, ready to be pulled out and say, ah, this is what I do in this time because I've been doing it and training myself for doing this. And so that's why I think 
now could potentially be almost too late for some of us, but it's still, even when we start something and it's, um, it's something that we're inexperienced in and, and maybe we're not even having the faith to understand what all this is or is not doing. There is a trust that says, this is good. It comes from God. And so I'm going to submit myself under the constraints of these confinements because it's going to lead to my truest happiness and freedom because it's going to result in me getting God himself. And so that's the encouragement I want to provide of be filled with the Spirit continually through Christian practice like singing, like giving thanks, like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and whatever other Christian practices that we find that put ourselves in a state of being that encourage or fan the flame or feed the Spirit. And I believe that some of us will find greater victory from our sin the more that we realize that we are, in fact, guided by and encouraging the Spirit of God in us through the practice of fasting. There are many different resources on fasting, and as I've gone through some of them, one of the common themes is that we can find freedom from other areas of our sinful flesh through the practice of fasting because it's putting us in this state of just longing and hungering for the things of God in ways that we weren't before. So as a takeaway for today, I want all of us to, to obey the command of be filled with the Spirit. I want all of us to look at verses 19, 20, and 21 and apply that to your life this week. And then as an additional recommendation, not as a command, not as a mandate, not as a everyone must do this at Embassy Church and we're all going to fast on Wednesday or something, I want to suggest, I want to encourage you to think about and consider maybe skipping a meal. I want to suggest and consider that fasting could be an appropriate response when you have grief and sorrow. The other day we were talking, my wife and I, about the grief that we were starting to realize when we stopped and paused and we waited to just sit for a second and think about some of the tragedy that is going on around us. Even though my home is not currently in total upheaval right now, and although there is some inconveniences and some struggles and some day-to-day -day sins that pop up, we started to think about some of the kids where them not going to school for the rest of the school year is going to be a terrible tragedy for them. That school was a safe place for them to get away from the, the chaos of their, their home life or to, to get meals from their school breakfasts or lunches and, and these sort of things where they could have friends and fellowship and, and a teacher who loves them because when they go home, they're not going to have that. And it, and it brought us to just grieve and to, to, to realize that there is a lot of pain that's going to go on right now just from the simple things of schools canceled for the rest of the school year. And friends, if we hear of these news reports and we give ourselves to think for a moment of what's going on around us and in us and in our homes, my guess is some of us are going to feel grief. And one appropriate response to that might be for us to skip a meal or two, take a day and fast and say, God, we hunger and long for these things to end. We are longing for the day of true and total freedom because today we have the Spirit of God, but we are not fully freed from this slavery of our sinful fleshly desires, and we long for it, God. So come, Lord Jesus. May that be a prayer of ours as we give ourselves to praying and fasting. So friends, I want us to close with two songs that I think will help us in um, this 
time as we consider what it is we're being called and encouraged to do. The first song is Jesus is Better. And that's essentially one way to say everything we've been saying in song form, that more than pleasure, more than comfort, more than eating your breakfast or lunch tomorrow, more than anything else, Jesus Christ is in fact best. And lastly, as we talked about from the start, sin is not trusting that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. So let's close out our time in singing with "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." It's sweet. Notice the pun in the play on words that we chose for this song. It is like a sweet meal, better than any meal you'll ever have. So Adam, if you could lead us in these next two songs. benediction. The good word from the good word of God is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 23 to 24. This is my prayer for all of you at embassy. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.